0: Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry Podcast, episode 79. For those of you new to the show, I'm comedian Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand up, comedy, radio, and today, the live circuit. Vladimir McTavish, also known as Paul Snedden, is a comedian who has been performing for the better part of 30 years. He has a stake in the Stand Comedy Club, and we got him on to talk about what it means for the chain to have four comedians sitting on their board of directors, as well as the history of the national circuit and his involvement in the Newcastle Comedy Festival. Listening back to this, it was very much in line with the original idea for the podcast. I originally wanted to be two professionals chatting about the industry in an open, honest and frank way with no bullshit, just like we all do in car journeys all the time. But I wanted industry involved in those chats as well. So if you're about to go for a long drive to a gig on your own or you're a fan of comedy who just fancies being a fly on the wall in a casual chat between two comics about the highs and lows of the past 25 years on the circuit from their very different perspectives, you're in the right place and I think you're in for a treat I'm really happy with this one very quickly I just wanted to tell you about some dates that I'm performing live so if you wanted to come down and support me in real life that's a way of doing it and you can also drop a donation in the bucket if it's a bucketed show or just slip it into my hand if you don't want to put it into the bucket and want to have two separate transactions for the content that I provided either online or in real life. God, that sounded clinical. I'm sorry. The dates you should be interested in for this month are the 11th, 18th and 25th. Basically, the next three Thursdays in May, I'm doing the Brighton Fringe, but I'm also doing the Friday, the 26th in Brighton at the Carolina Brunswick all the Thursday shows start at 7.30pm the Friday show starts at 6.15pm and all the details are on my website so if you have a look in the show notes you should be able to see it there or you can go to simonkanecouk forward slash laughter is the best placebo if you're not down on the coast and you're more up in the sort of Midlandsy region I'm also doing a work in progress in Derby at the Derby Fringe on Saturday the 13th of May again all the details are on my website but it's at 7pm and you can just reserve your ticket or whatever on the website so please come please support me there that would be invaluable and just amazingly helpful and it's also bloody lovely to meet people from the podcast so please do come down and support me if you can before i hit play i just want to say that if you're new here please do remember to hit that subscribe button if you're old here please do remember to leave us an honest review in itunes as long as it's not one star but now without any more delays this is vladimir mctavish
1: my name's Paul Snedd I work under the stage name of Vladimir McTavish. Now, there's actually quite a good reason for that in terms of when I started out in the business. I actually started out being a promoter and a comedian and didn't want to use the same name for both.
0: A surprising number of promoters don't want to be, not hard with the brush, but mm. called a promoter over a comedian.
1: Yeah, it was partly that, but also I didn't, I didn't really particularly want to use... My status as a promoter in in order to get any kind of unfair advantage in terms of, you know, where I was in the business, whatever. I'd been going for a couple of years when I became one of the directors of Newcastle Comedy Festival in the early 90s. For a short period of time, that was like the biggest comedy festival in the UK outside of Edinburgh. It just seemed wrong to kind of capitalise on that by trying to get any kind of an unfair advantage in the business.
0: So you would be a promoter as Paul? Yes, Yes. So in this capacity, I'm calling you Paul. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I tell you what. I've got questions about the circuit. Yeah. So we'll uh-huh. work out what's the best thing to name you. Sure. Later on in that. Yeah, yeah. And at the moment, what is your role specifically with the stand and in the wider world right. of comedy?
1: With I, I'm predominantly a jobbing stand-up comedian and have been for best part 25 years. I have over the years done quite a lot of promoting but really haven't been particularly hands-on since around about 2000, where I really have concentrated on my live work. My role in The Stand is that of um, a non-executive director. There's a number of us on the board of directors. There's myself, Miles Jupp, Fred Macaulay, Frankie Boyle, and Tommy Shepard, who obviously is now MP for Edinburgh East, but was the guy who set the whole club up in the first place. And... Two of the full-time staff here at the venue. So myself, Fred, Frankie, and Miles really. our role is solely going to four meetings a year, pretty much.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And Frankie never goes to any of them. <laughs>
0: right. Okay.
1: We had once had a meeting in Frankie's house, and he went to that.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say if he doesn't turn up to that one.
1: But he left before the end. Did he really? Yeah. Had to pick... No, he had to pick his kids up at school.
0: Oh, that's fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort of reason. Yeah, Unless yeah. it did it overrun, or did it, or did he plan it so that he didn't have to hang around? Uh,
1: I think it probably overran. Fair enough.
0: Okay. Okay, and what what exactly is a non-executive board member for someone? Because for me, that's a really vague
1: title. Yes, it is quite a vague title, isn't it? And it's something that MPs always tend to get, <laughs> land themselves in, non-executive directorships. Basically, it means you do very little. I'm not,
0: I, I mean... I'm glad to have you on. But, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You do very little. Um, basically, um, the non-executive directors of Salt & Source Promotions, which is the company that owns the stand, they basically are the people who are shareholders in the company. I used to be a shareholder in the Hyena Comedy Club in Newcastle, which grew out of the Comedy Festival in Newcastle. I was a director of that up until the whole business got taken over by one of the other directors and quite a... quite an aggressive takeover that kind of divided all the people that were involved in the company at the time. When he bought us out quite aggressively I'd always kind of at the back of my mind wanted to keep that money to reinvest in comedy in Newcastle. So when the stand had plans to open in Newcastle I approached Tommy at the time and said look I'd actually quite like to use this money that I got from selling shares in Hyena to help develop a good comedy club in, in Newcastle. And that was when he said the best way to do that is to buy shares in the whole company and that would make you a director of the company. Because my connection to... Newcastle goes way, way back to when I first actually started out in the business in the early nineties, because that's where I first started doing stand-up.
0: And what? Okay, let's do it this way around. Mm. What was the? That's where you started doing Mm stand-up. So, what was the Newcastle scene like when you started?
1: There was one gig.
0: What level of gig was that?
1: There was one gig in the. Bar of the Time Theatre, which is an old Victorian opera house, it was actually, the gig was started by uh, Dave Johns. Now, um, Dave Johns has recently had a lot of plaudits for his role in that Ken Loach film by Daniel Blake. Dave... Started this gig called The Comedy Cafe in the bistro of the Time Theatre, and that ran for a number of years. Dave and myself, we were the people who first got together to start the Newcastle Comedy Festival, which was in 1993. Myself and John Fothergill, and Gavin Webster, and a young bloke called Ross Noble used to run this monthly gig in a little pub in the east end of the. The city, and uh, it was a, oh, about 40 50 seat room, little upstairs room in a pub. But it was great fun, and that's where a lot of us cut our teeth in this kind of monthly show we did there. One of the guys that did that game was a guy called Tony Mendoza, who about 10 years ago, uh, very tragic course of uh, series of events, Tony ended up committing suicide 10 years ago. We had a benefit to raise money for his kids, and we decided the best thing to do was to go back to the Cumberland Arms and have all the old crew who used to do this monthly gig there, including Ross. Ross was actually still living in Australia at the time, but he was he was back, I think it was in between Edinburgh and his tour, and he did the gig... Uh, we didn't put one on the posters, but word of mouth was that Ross was doing the gig, and it sold out in ten minutes. You had to, yeah, you, you could only get tickets at the pub, and it sold out in ten minutes on a Monday morning. That's amazing. Hmm.
0: That's similar. Well, that's what we were talking about before we started talking mm. about if you want to see a performer, mm. you'll make the effort to go and see them. Yeah, absolutely. And outside of that, it's very hard to kind of find that audience that all kind of want to come see you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, Apart from the odd club that people will go to, and the stands, the stands is one of them, I think it's very difficult nowadays to sell just comedy clubs, you know, to, to sell comedy without people knowing any name of people who are on, if you know what I mean.
0: Why do you think that
1: is? I don't know. It used to be quite easy to sell a comedy night
0: because... Define easy.
1: Well, I... Uh, it used to be that if you put a comedy night on, the idea of a comedy night would be enough to get an audience in. But I think now audiences, because they see so much live comedy in television, they're a lot more discerning about what they go to see.
0: And I, I'd argue economic factors like the generation that were going to just go and see it now probably have kids, which means That's they right. can't get out as much yeah, yeah, and yeah. they've got other bills to pay.
1: Absolutely, there is that too. What will happen is unless you get a new generation in, then yeah certain gigs will will wither that's
0: yeah that's the big question yeah how would you do that <laughs> yeah. how, I mean well, how is the stand able to not do not compete in that way then?
1: well what well, Kenny who's uh, the area manager for the stand well he always says that the Red Raw, which is the Monday night show that uh, you're doing tonight that runs on a Monday here in Edinburgh runs on a Tuesday in Glasgow and a Wednesday in Newcastle that is by and large very much the student audience and what he tends to find I mean is that people who stay on after they graduate and choose to live in Edinburgh or Newcastle or Glasgow once they finish the course the hope is that they will, when they've got a bit more money, come to the more expensive shows but yeah, there the, the must be. in every city in the country there's a huge generation moving on and going elsewhere and obviously yeah, you, you will lose them. That's a negative side. I, I think a very positive thing is the generational aspect of people who are going to comedy on stag and hen nights. I think and maybe this is being ludicrously wishful thinking I think the bottom might have fallen out of that market you reckon? I see less and you seem to see less and less stag do's. and I think if you think about it it's quite a brief window in your life when you're going a stag i
0: yeah I've seen less in some clubs mm. but more in others.
1: That yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think you may, I think you might be right in that it could be that there just certain clubs now catering solely for stags and hence.
0: But there's also I don't want to say it like this, but there's no repeat business there no, really. No exactly. Because if for example I did a, if I wanted to get married one day and I had a mm. stag party at a at a comedy club. Yeah. It's unlikely my friends are gonna go, Oh that was a great night, let's do it again. Exactly. We'd no. go, let's do something else this yeah, time. Exactly.
1: Club. Yeah, if I'd been on a stag do at a comedy night and I'd never been alive Comedy again? I definitely wouldn't go. It, um, it's,
0: it seems like there's a specific if, mark. Yeah, I know.
1: it's it's almost like. Hey, but also, instead he's of he's going to comedy on a stag night, just I don't see. I think it's not a great stag night, and it's definitely not a great way to watch a comedy show.
0: No, it, I, I think when you go into a comedy show, you need a certain mindset, mm. or you need to be in a certain mood to yeah. do it. I know I need to be as much as possible in a certain mood in order to do it at my best. Uh, like I said to you before, when I did that Glasgow tour mm. date, when I literally got off the train and ran to the venue, and I was meant to start a minute after. I arrived or something. That's not the best headspace no, to be in. No, no. I mean, I would have done it and it would have been fine yeah. but it's not the best. You'd, I would like 20 minutes beforehand just to yeah. sit or something and like get my head into the play.
1: I once did a gig in South Wales. It's the day of a rail strike.
0: Good start. It was always
1: a good start. It was a Friday afternoon. When I still live in Newcastle. I drove all the way down there and then To make matters worse, not only was it a rail strike on a Friday afternoon, the last hour of it was in torrential rain. It was up the Swansea Valley. So when I turned off the M4 to go up the valley at it was. And when I turned off the M4, one of my windscreen wipers stopped working. Okay. <laughs> and I got there five minutes before it was due on stage. actually had a blindingly good gig. I think sometimes when you get that kind of adrenaline about how do you, oh God, you're panicking about how to get there. It just, that just gets you through the gig. But the obvious thing in the tail of this one, or not obvious, but it's what happened is I didn't get paid. <laughs> it was these guys who briefly were promoting comedy and Swanry And I remember this, now when would this have been it was in mid 90s I remember at Edinburgh that year people were looking for them lots yeah. of comedians were looking for these guys because they owed money to loads and loads of people I don't know if
0: you're in this group mm. but on Facebook there's a group called something like Unpaid Comedians oh yeah yeah yeah, I get, yeah. because they're sort of lumping together using digital to, to if yeah. for example a promoter hasn't paid mm. to, to take them to equity essentially yeah. or to task and some mm. that trend is that group is picking up and I don't know whether it's because more mm. people are joining it so there's more conversation or whether it's more people are joining it because they're not being paid.
1: Yeah, I think there's two things there. I think, obviously, the whole business of Jonglers and the whole business of so many people being owed so much money by Jonglers, I think made public the whole whole fact that for years there have been people who have been, you know, slow or deliberately slow or just actually deliberately trying to get out of paying people. that That's always... Ever since I came into the business, there have been people like that. I think what was the difference with Jonglers was that suddenly this was the largest chain of comedy clubs in the country. We're now not paying people. And that made everyone in the industry a accol- Acutely aware Of the fact That this was going on Also the number Of comedians Who were suddenly All involved Either complaining Or litigation Or whatever Against the same company Brought a lot of people together And also the fact That this social media Makes people Much easier For people to connect With one another When it used to be In the old days you just get It would be When you're on a car Journey to a gig And you'd say Oh god that bloke's not He's not paid you either
0: Yeah To me it's kind of Odd that they're even Getting comedians in Because I understand If you gig once for them Mm. And then were ignorant To the fact they weren't pay, mm-hmm. But after a certain period of time, like you said, if you know, mm-hmm. if we got into a car that's two people, there's two other people in the car. Those two people would tell four people. Eventually, especially yeah. with social media, mm-hmm. you'd think people would stop gigging for. Them. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend who who worked there who was not a comedian. They just worked mm-hmm. at the thing. Who told me that they were getting phone calls from comedians to try and get gigs there last Christmas, mm-hmm. regardless of the fact they'd been posting online earlier on in the month, going they've still not paid me yeah. because they saw five hundred quid for a Christmas gig or a grand mm-hmm. for a Christmas gig, and they were like, actually, I'll, t- I'll, I'll yeah. go for it. Yeah. And I don't. I don't know how much sympathy I can have then. If you've not been paid already... Yeah, yeah. I mean, would you take a gig from a promoter that hasn't already paid you? I mean, No,
1: exactly. And um, there's a promoter in Leeds. I won't mention him because that, apparently he's now got his act together and is paying people regularly, who still owes me 400 quid now he actually owed me 400 quid for two gigs I then went to do three gigs for him he paid me the 400 quid he owed me before the first one on Thursday he paid me 200 for that but then the Friday Saturday of that weekend I've still never been paid for amazing <laughs> so it was just kind of ro- I guess I mean from what that experience tells me is that maybe if I gig for him again he paid me that 400 pounds yeah. he <laughs> owes me
0: maybe he's always catching up on the last payment
1: yeah but I just thought
0: nah you know what um,
1: it's also when you try that distance to know uh, well you see that, that weekend was okay because I came away with 600 quid but t- 400 quid of that was 400 quid I'd been owed for a year previously but it is that whole thing when you do a journey like that all the way down to South, South Wales on one windscreen wiper <laughs> and then don't get paid that, that, yeah that's the thing actually that gig cost me a hell of a lot more money than most gigs because not only did I have to pay for all the petrol to drive from Newcastle to South Wales I had to buy a wiper blade or get my <laughs> wiper repaired
0: but that, that would inevitably be a problem happened anyway.
1: That would have happened anyway, <laughs> but it, these things tend to happen together.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. I just, well, I mean, if you hadn't have driven the car as much, would it have mm. broken down as quickly? You know, there's all kinds of mitigating facts. And I think what I find most interesting is when I talk to, so if I talk to someone who's an audience member about someone who's ludicrously famous, who's mm. like selling out an arena, they always say something like, oh, they've earned it. They've gone so hard. They've done all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they're all kind of very appreciative. Of it. And then if I sell a friend, for example, I got paid 120 quid for a 20 minute mm. spot at somewhere in London or whatever they go you got paid 120 quid for 20 minutes worth of work mm. and they don't factor in well that took me two hours to get to and two mm-hmm. hours to get back and obviously costs to get there as well as my own time and the time to write the material and-
1: well yeah, it's the, it's the time yeah because what, that's what a lot of people don't see isn't it is the, the really the writing time and i don't know about you but i do this a lot i do a lot of unpaid gigs trying out new stuff. Yeah. I mean here at Red Raw I often we'll try out new stuff in an unpaid spot or there's a few new material other gigs around and I'll I'll do them just to test stuff out. And so yeah, if we are refactoring all that time, it's uh yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm still not break even point, mm. but I'm wondering whether that's because I'm still booking myself into yeah you know the odd unpaid thing here and there. I mean I probably do two of them a week. oh do you but but do, do that many yeah uh, uh, well I'd probably do three maybe if I didn't have any other paid yeah. or progression work. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, if, but two, I think, is a good amount if I'm doing four of something else.
1: Yeah, and it's quite handy to have that stage time and keep you, keep yourself sharp, isn't it? Even if you're not trying new stuff. But I always think that the more new stuff you try, the more uh, the more you enjoy the job. That's the thing, isn't it? That, uh, I always love the autumn because I like the fact that stuff you've written for an hour in Edinburgh as part of your hour-long solo show, you can actually make working club sets. I often go to try out nights just to try stuff that I've actually done for three weeks, but I've done it for three weeks within the context. Actually, an hour-long show to, to see if it works within the context of, say, like a ten-minute set that you're doing at a tryout night. And if it works in a ten-minute set, it's going to work in a twenty-minute set.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like mm. taking out the chunk to make sure. Because I find that, especially with my first hour, there's mm. two bits of it that only ever work in the hour. Yeah. And I, that's not a problem because I was only doing those bits in the hour. Mm. But I did try them in clubs, and every time I was like, why doesn't it? Yeah, I know. But I think it's partly because one of them is about 25 minutes into it, and mm-hmm. and so it has this cushion of they know me for 25 minutes. Absolutely. Which they yeah. don't have in a club where they'll only know me for 10 or 11 until I do mm-hmm. that yeah and I suppose if you're on a date with someone for example mm-hmm. if you if you talk to them for three hours you might be a little bit more amenable to something they say than if you were five minutes in
1: yeah absolutely yeah 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 Probably there <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: thought, tell us about your date with a neonat yeah yeah absolutely
1: <laughs> no you're right I've done gigs where you've when you've worked out one costs of getting there and two the time it's taken
0: you think hang on this is actually
1: less than the minimum wage.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've thought about that quite a bit recently mm. because it sounds like a bigger amount of money than it is when mm. you get the thing. If I said I'll pay you 20 quid to come do the stand and you weren't associated with mm. it, mm-hmm. it's down the road from you, of course you're going to do it. But if I said, oh I'll pay you 20 quid to come do the equivalent of the stand in Leeds, mm. that's going to work out to negative money for you. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But you yeah. still, do, but, I mean I would still do it most of the time if, mm. if I thought it was going to lead to something.
1: It's one of these things, yeah or if you think, if it's convenient to get to or if it's on the way to somewhere else. That's the other thing as well, isn't it? Going all the way down to Leeds from here. For one night you think oh, that'd be bloody pointless. Whereas if you yeah. were on your way to Sheffield or London or anywhere, yeah, you, know, you might squeeze in a not particularly well paid gig if you had a night off on your way to somewhere else.
0: Yeah, to try and make it make the money work.
1: Mm. But I know I mean the thing as comedians do that you think because we're self employed, we will do stuff that if this was a job that somebody paid you to do and employed you, you wouldn't put up with it. No. Likewise, I find myself doing things that, as a promoter, you know, having been a promoter in the past, I find myself saying yes to things that I would never have dreamed of offering to anybody <laughs> yeah. else. Going, nah, they wouldn't do that. I find myself saying yes to stuff. Do you think why did I say yes to that?
0: <laughs> I know what you mean. It's it's kind of odd like if someone says to you oh can you just give us a bit of a hand but I think that mm. comes down to the industry's so small mm. that I think a lot of people do stuff for not the wrong reasons but they just think what if I need them at some point I and, know what you mean yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. but I, I, I see that happening increasingly often where, where people will be like you said mm. I mean n- nicer to you potentially if they knew Paul and Vladimir were the same person yeah 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 and book you for more stuff mm. it was like when I first started out I didn't tell anyone I could drive for like the first two All right. or three years because mm. I didn't want to get a gig as the driver Driver.
1: Good call. But yeah. then
0: I met up with a few promoters because we would just I would do a Christmas party every year. We've been doing it this year from mm. to come. Oh, yeah. But anyway, I would do a Christmas party every year, and they'd come to that, and they and they drunkenly said to me, "Why didn't you say you could drive? I would have, I would have booked you." And I went because I don't want you doing that. And they went, "No, no, no. It's just because I couldn't find a driver. It's not because I wouldn't have booked you because of that." Yes. And it's like, when can I ask you that? When can I when can I openly say to you, "Hey, are you booking me because I can drive? Because I don't want to be that person."
1: Yeah, I what you mean. One thing that gets me is promoters who decide you're driving.
0: Yes, they sort of. Of, say you're on. Oh, by the way, there's three people coming from the same city. Yeah, exactly. Oh, all right. I was going to get the train. Quite actually. like
1: two of them.
0: Yeah, oh, I've had that before. Yeah. Where this, I won't mention who it was, but uh, there's this person who. You ever meet a comedian who's always on? Like just right. just yeah, the yeah. whole j- drive wants to oh, be the. Oh god, bloody exhausting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I and I literally said to the promoter, I was like, I don't want to drive them. They're gonna they're gonna kill me. The whole like I just yeah. It was like a three hour drive, and I, I just. I, if it was an hour, I might have thought about it, but three hours of someone trying material in your ear. Oh,
1: utterly <laughs> appalling. I did some gigs a couple of years ago for the Gilded Balloon. Gilded Balloon, as well as doing their all the shows they do during the Fringe, have a fairly restricted comedy circuit in Scotland of shows to promote. It's got a bit bigger now, but two years ago, it was just a gig in Dundee and a gig in Inverness. What they do, though, is they put on a driver who drives everybody home.
0: As in a performance or just to drive no no it's it,
1: it's, she, it's usually show manager oh, cool. who tours with the show and drives everybody it's really good it's great it's great but the trouble is it's all well and good <laughs> it's all well and good if you're all going back to the same city <laughs> and it's all well and good if one person doesn't talk endlessly about this one woman show she's written and this, again, this Scottish comedian, who will remain nameless, had written a one-woman show about mice, which itself is quite a fascinating subject. Yeah. <laughs> and she talked endlessly on a four-hour journey, including coming back from Inverness via Glasgow. Ask any listeners of this podcast to just look at a map of Scotland and <laughs> see how much further Inverness to Glasgow, to Edinburgh, would be That was a long journey.
0: I'm aware of that journey because when I did the tour, I booked Glasgow and Edinburgh. Mm. And and in Edinburgh, it was... Where was it? It was out in... It was by the coast area. And then I was looking around that bit because Mm -hmm. there's a touring company, I can't remember what they're called, who do... You know, so like we'll take your show around different theatres up here. Oh, right. I can't remember mm. what they're called. I found them at the um, Fringe Central. Mm. They were like scouting for people and they sent me the, mm. the details. But I was looking at it and I was looking, and I was like, this looks fine. But then I was like, I'm zoomed quite far out. Yeah. I was, <laughs> this is not as uh, mm. succinct as I was hoping it to be. I mean, talking of the, the Gilded Balloon, I had Karen Corrin on this. And in mm. it... I, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I yeah. yeah,
0: I had her on it. And she told me that she doesn't think that if you were a performer, only gigging, as in only earning your money from mm. performing in Scotland anyway. You would not be able to find enough gigs To do that as a professional
1: It's almost doable now I think Uh, It has changed a lot in the time that I've lived here When I first moved back to Scotland. It was around about the time that The Stand opened, because after I, I'm just trying to think about the time scale to this, I lived in London for five years in between setting up Newcastle Comedy Festival, Um, although quite a lot of that time I was still hands on with Newcastle Comedy Festival, even though it was based in London and during that time I hardly ever gigged in Scotland, and I would take gigs in Scotland that weren't that well paid just because I wanted to come home to see family, and really when The Stand opened up, that, that really did kickstart the whole business here North of the Border. Start, I I think it gave another, a number of small promoters the confidence to set up the gigs seeing that there was an audience there but I mean, we're talking about best part of 20 years now now in Edinburgh there's now two permanent dedicated comedy venues in Edinburgh there's two in Glasgow there's soon going to be a dedicated seven days a week comedy venue in Aberdeen but yeah yeah, we're talking about it. it's taken 20 years to get to that stage plus various other bits and pieces I, I think if you're to solely concentrate on doing comedy clubs then I think Karen's probably right, you probably couldn't quite make a living out of it. However there's quite a lot of other comedy things, you know when you factor in things like corporates sports and social clubs, various things like that. I probably now work about three quarters of my gigs are in Scotland whereas when I first moved up here we were looking at 10% to a quarter and over that period gradually that, that percentage has got Higher Now there, I think there's two reasons for that firstly because I've been here for longer I've got more contacts here but secondly I do think there's a hell of a lot more work around than there was a few years ago.
0: Oh, it will always yeah. sort of grow mm-hmm. but I find it interesting that comedians kind of have to move to where the work is rather than the work moving to where the comedians are Yeah. Mm-hmm. because like you said we'll do yeah. a lot more than.
1: When I first started out though it pretty much was essential to live in London.
0: Yeah I find that, re- here's the thing I live, well I lived mm-hmm. just on the outskirts of London mm-hmm. for the last, well my entire life mm-hmm. and I've only just moved out and now I'm some somewhere like sort of out in Luton Way which is kind of further out than London than I can yeah. even validate to say it's London. The industry everyone thinks of as centric to London mm. I mean when I went to Dublin, every like there was a few comedians who kept saying, mm. oh, I'm going to move over there soon can you help me out with gigs? Mm. What's it like in London? I bet it's amazing. There are more gigs per capita yeah. than a lot of other cities. That doesn't mean there's a lot of progression opportunities, no. paid opportunities mm. and I don't mean it to sound like I'm jaded or mm. like I've got some sort mm. of vendetta or anything like that but their business is on the line a lot of the time mm. and because there's so many that it's competitive mm-hmm. to the point of they have to book people they know Work and mm. they can't take as many risks on newer acts. Yeah, that's right. And I find it kind of odd that London's still. I mean, I get the loads of the agents are there and the TV production companies, so all that kind of stuff, but I don't understand why London is seen as the place.
1: That's right. And because also, so many of the gigs aren't that well paid. Some of the really nice gigs aren't that well paid, which is the shame but you do them because they're nice. But also, there's so many comedians in London.
0: It's like I always compare it to going to talk to a girl in a bar. Yeah. Like, that's the worst place to talk to her because mm. 30 other men have spoken to her yeah. that night. Yeah, yeah, a heteronormative true. example, I get mm. it. But but it's the time I would never go and mm-hmm. talk to a girl to try and get a number because it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because
1: when I first started promoting in Newcastle, let say, yeah, there was one gig there. Then I ran a gig in Durham and another one in Newcastle, but there was nothing there. But there were lots of comedians. But I think now, I mean, that thing you were saying about the work being where the comedians are, I think what happens is if there is nowhere to play, people will, yeah, people will leave. Although there's a lot more gigs in Scotland than there were before The Stand was here, I'm guessing and I would I couldn't even give you anywhere like an accurate approximation of how many how many more comedians there are in Scotland now as opposed to say like 20 years ago because um, in the days when there's only a handful of gigs here there probably wasn't that many Scottish comedians who were actually based in Scotland most of them would be people who were based down south or if they weren't based down south were spending almost their entire lives traveling up and you know down there and back
0: yeah wasting their yeah. their money on mm-hmm. the train. Mm-hmm. In terms of the stand itself, then, where would you say it sits in the ecosystem of the circuit? Both in terms of um, let's just let's ignore Edinburgh for now, mm. but let's talk about the Scottish circuit and scene and the rest of the country.
1: Mm. Wh- where it stands with you mean within some kind of hierarchical sense? Is that what you're saying, or just
0: if that's the way you want to? I was thinking of it more like where its position is in terms of what kind of people it attracts, what kind of people it would. Uh, appeal to and also audiences, what kind of people they want to see.
1: Sure. The audiences vary greatly from venue to venue because Glasgow Stand very much gets a Glaswegian audience and me, the the odd tourist. But here in Edinburgh, at any given weekend of the year, there's lots of people in city breaks. So People always tend to think that Edinburgh only attracts visitors to comedy shows in August. And obviously it does. But outside of August, the other 11 months of the year, if you're doing a weekend show here at the stand, it can be a really, really wide demographic. Likewise, even the midweek gigs, quite often there's tourists in. Even for things you wouldn't expect that week tourists are, usually once or twice a month, there's a benefit show here. And the benefit shows tend to be... I mean, what the venue does is they give the, the charity the venue, but make the onus in selling tickets. Up to the charity that works in two levels I mean firstly it means they usually work hard to get an audience in they don't rely on the stand doing it secondly it takes pressure off the venue to have to you know put time and effort and money into selling the show however of you also get just a whole lot of random walk-ups and so quite often even in the charity show which is you know predominantly made up of local people who supporting that charity you'll get half a dozen people from Lithuania or God knows where or you know you, and that, that's the thing because two just to Edinburgh come from all over the world. You just can, you can never second guess when they're going to come from. Whereas, like I say Glasgow is a much more, much more of a local audience.
0: What about Newcastle?
1: Newcastle again, like Glasgow, much more of a local audience. Newcastle certain nights of the week, and I know this, and it's quite funny looking at how the Newcastle stand is kind of repeating things I can remember from when I promoted Newcastle over twenty years ago. There are certain nights of the week. People don't go out to comedy. Sunday nights are really... uh, Yeah, yeah. really difficult to get an audience in on a Sunday night.
0: I I talked to Michael Redman the other day, Mm. and he told me that in Glasgow, because he does the Mm. one there, he says it does all right all the time, so it's kind of interesting that city by city it will...
1: yeah. I think Michael's show in Glasgow works, I think there's two things, I think because the Glasgow stand is in a fairly residential area, it's very near the university, therefore a Sunday night crowd is probably easier to get in there. Also, secondly, the Sunday night shows in Glasgow are sold on Michael's name, so it's called Michael Redmond Sunday Service, it has a, a clear identity and very much is Michael's it is Michael's night with guests, and so quite a lot of the audience have gone just to see Michael. Whereas the Newcastle stand, city centre venue, Newcastle City Centre, is dead on a Sunday, on a Sunday night. It's quite busy on Sunday during the day because there's quite a lot of people in pubs watching afternoon football. So because the pubs are full of people football, in the football. afternoon watching football, it's probably quite a good thing that they don't come to comedy gigs.
0: Yeah, football's basically the killer of comedy. What the last thing
1: you'd experience. want, the last thing you'd want, is a bunch of jodies that have been drinking for five hours. Yeah, and it, watching football
0: doesn't. It sounds as much of a dream as a room full of stagpies. Yeah, yeah. Mm. A, a question I like asking uh, performers, so I'm sort of asking you as Vladimir, mm. um, is a lot of performers would call themselves one thing, but their take-home income would be from something else. Mm. So for example, some comedians make more money from writing than performing, Mm -hmm. but obviously would rather label themselves as a comedian. Mm. Some promoters, you know, more money from promoting shows, but all that kind of stuff. By the sounds of it, you've got quite a good spread of income rather than Mm. just doing, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously you're a full-time performer, but you do a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. And I wonder where your breakdown would correlate to. Yeah,
1: I think, and again- How how would you label yourself? Yeah, I I am a, a performer. Okay. I, I do bits of writing, I do bits I still do the odd bit of promotion. I mean I do I've been asked to book a comedy show for a festival in Fife in July. I've been asked to book a comedy night for the opening of a cinema in Malacan Tyre. Ah, oh, yeah. And so I'll I will i I'll, I'll take things like that because I think oh that sounds quite interesting. I quite like the look of that. Uh, the idea I'd ever run my own gig again it, Nah, nah, <laughs> I couldn't. couldn't. Uh, although I do run a night during The Fringe, I love it. For the last four years, I've run a night at the Scottish Comedy Festival in the Beehive. I had to do uh oh, Benver's Yeah, Ben gig. gig. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and again, I should have mentioned Ben and all of this, I mean, the development of, Scot- development of Scottish comedy. I mean, the, the work that Ben has put into developing. Scottish comedy is immense. And he now has his own venue, the Monkey Barrel, uh, which is a full time venue in Edinburgh, um, which
0: I've got them coming on soon, actually, because oh, I was meant to, that's why I was hoping to get it early enough, because oh, it's going to give me a tour of the, have you been to the new
1: one? Yeah, I've played it.
0: Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't think it
1: was open yet. Oh, oh, the, oh no, it's not open yet. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh In fact, last weekend, uh, he booked Michael Redmond, myself, and the Reverend Noble there, Steppenwolf. He thought, booked three headline acts because it was the opening weekend. Nice. <laughs> and it wasn't. So it's still the same back room it was. Did he go during the Fringe? I got booked a couple of times in the Fringe, yeah. It's the same room it was during the Fringe. Uh,
0: Nice room. Oh, it's a lovely room. It's
1: very much a Fringe room. Oh, yeah. And still, it it feels very much like a Fringe venue. And there's no point in them doing any more work on it because the the plan is that it's going to be open upstairs, hopefully by Christmas. No, it's going to be great, though. Mm. Yeah, so I've been running this night at Ben's Scottish Comedy Festival called Scotland Speak at the Fringe. It's a four, four-at bill or a compare for an hour, and every year I think, God, what I, what I? You, well, I, I love it, I really enjoy doing it, but every year when somebody pulls at the last minute, you thought, what the hell did I get myself into this again? Um, and you just forget. And I think because a lot, of, a lot of other comedians give just never stop complaining about promoters. But having been bummed myself I can always kind of see their point of view and there's nothing worse than some guy pulling out the last minute yeah uh, although that's the great advantage of the fringe of promoting a show like that during the fringe you know there's always someone you can get you just bump into someone in the street if nothing else yeah um, but that's pretty much the only promoting I do now so and the money I make from that is minimal yeah some I would say oh, of my income comes from stand-up. From gigging as in? Yeah, from gigging.
0: And is that all club stuff, or is that, you said you do corporates as well?
1: Clubs, corporates, uh, sporting dues, festivals, because as well as doing Edinburgh, I go out to Australia uh, most years for the last four or five years. Okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I found it because I spoke to Adam Bloom about this, um, I think, yeah, he was on the night we did.
1: That's right, that night at, uh, yeah, Adam and you and Al Cowie and four people in the audience.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I loved the that? So I didn't, I didn't tell you this before we started. So you know, he bought uh, Adam bought the whole uh, audience a drink. Yeah. He texted me afterwards and said, I, I told you that bit. Yeah. But then, but then he texted me afterwards and said, you did really well tonight. All that kind of stuff. And then, and then he texted me uh, just a bit, like you know, saying how well it mm. went. And then I said, "Can I use it as a quote?" And he went, "Why would you want to use that as a quote?" And I went, "It sounds great." And it was something like, um, "One of the only people this year to make me howl with laughter." And I was like, "That's a good. That's a good quote." Isn't yeah. He was like, "Why would you want to ever use that?" I went, "Because it's funny. Like, I think it's really good." But yeah, it was. It was a weird night. But he he told me that he when he started doing corporates, mm-hmm. he said something like, uh, "Immediately, he could if he wanted to do like." less gigs every month in exchange for one corporate, because essentially they paid a lot more, Mm. but also the amount of research he does for them meant that, you know, because you have to research the company, make some Mm. custom jokes, and also turn up early, and usually it's a day worth of your life rather than just an hour. Mm. And and I had, uh, who was it? It's weird the way that this is all coming around full circle, Mm. because I had on uh, the guy who runs um, JLS, the the biggest corporate company in the country he used to manage Michael Redmond
1: oh yeah it's amazing Mm. how Mm.
0: the the Scottish circuit has kind of just a whole I don't know like Mm. you can see the links coming together or at least I can because I've spoken to enough of you but in London it feels so dispersed that you don't get the community spirit Mm. you get up here
1: Mm. yes there is very much a a feeling of of being a comedy community up here Mm. and somebody was asking me about this recently about whether you know the how comedians get on with each other. I think, by and large, we all pretty much get on okay. Um, especially at the kind of stratum of being, you know, jobbing club comedians. I, know, I mean, obviously oh, there's some people you don't like, and there's always going to be that. But, you know, by and large, people get on.
0: Is that what you always wanted to be? You want to be a jobbing comedian?
1: I think I always kind of... Yeah, I never really set my sights any higher than that, really. Um, I came in at this quite late. I've been an actor before I did this. and been in a sketch show and in fact the sketch show kind of gradually diminished in number, it started out with six of us, then there was four of us, then we became a double act <laughs> and then the guy, who's still my best mate he, he's now the literary manager of live theatre in Newcastle, he became a parent and decided he didn't, and we he was my writing partner as well, as, as well as being a double act, we were writing partners and we wrote plays and things like that together and he decided he wanted to focus on on the writing side of things so that's when I started doing solo stand up
0: yeah by, by not by design but by yeah, yeah.
1: by everyone else just fucking <laughs> off <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I'll right. tell you what
1: Simon yeah, go uh, although I had years of experience of acting, being in a sketch show, being in a double act, I think the most nervous I've ever been on stage would be that first solo stand-up gig. So God knows how total newcomers must feel. Because I've never been a total newcomer to stand-up, if you know what I mean, in that I had performing and comedy experience before I did solo stand-up and I still found that nerve-wracking the first time I did it.
0: How how old were you? you
1: I was in my 30s, early 30s at the time.
0: Which gig was
1: it? It was Here's here's, um, an example of how stupid I, it was a gig I put on myself Okay. <laughs> yeah well, um, well the sketch show I was in we we built up we used to do our own monthly gigs and we built up a quite of a hardcore fan base in Newcastle and so myself and Jess kept on when we became the double up we kept on doing a monthly show and then when he stopped I thought well I'll do a monthly show on my own uh, in the same venue and it was a good Friday, and it got a really good audience. So it's bizarre—the first gig I ever did Then I started doing, and it was shortly after that that Dave Johns opened the comedy cafe, and I started doing gigs there.
0: Oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. That's no, I not even. That's probably why you were so nervous because they came expecting something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you just went on stage, and they were like, what Wait, "Oh, they want to be along in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's playing. Oh, they're doing like a sketch. He'll be out in a circle yeah, or something." Yeah. That, that would have made me more nervous. Mm. Like, what was your first gig which wasn't your own?
1: Which wasn't my own. Yeah. Um, Were you
0: still nervous at that point?
1: No, nothing like a so nervous because okay. they have done it once.
0: Okay. So how old you said so you were in your mid 30s when mm. you started going. Mm. And were you like earning like were you full time by that point as a performer or did it have to change when you became
1: I was acting and doing bits of stand up and in fact my writing partner and myself would run a community theater company that did uh, theater for elderly audiences. Oh nice. Yeah, yeah, going around residential homes and sheltered housing and hospitals and things like that. And in fact that was great preparation for working in Stand up, because once if you've ever played to an audience of predominantly people with dementia, no heckle you ever get in a comedy club is ever going to come close to the nonsense they shout at you.
0: My my nan has dementia. Yeah. And every time I go and visit her, I compare it to like a game of improv. Yeah. Because she'll just randomly go, get in the car, and I'm like, all yeah, right, all right, nan. And then she'll go grab the vegetables, and I'm like, all right, here's the vegetables. She goes, not that one. And it's yep. like, what well, am I? Okay, nan, I'll keep going. Yeah. She, she just doesn't. She's not with it, so she doesn't have a clue yeah. what she's doing.
1: Well, imagine performing in front of 30 people like that. Couldn't do it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have enough trouble with, you know, yeah, yeah. mid-50s crowds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right, so in terms of the stand, you, like you said, they've got a board of directors who are pretty much all comedians.
1: A lot of them are, yeah, yeah.
0: And I think that's unique in the sense that most other clubs are run by a promoter who might be a comedian, but generally speaking, don't have they don't have a board above them or, or working with them mm. that... Gig at it And and have a vested interest in it In terms of their own career But also of their peers' careers
1: I think it does make us Pretty much unique Um, Are there any
0: others? I don't know I
1: I think a lot of promoters Think their lives Would be a lot better If they didn't have to deal With comedians they if they could just find like, a different way of selling beer. Some days I feel like that too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I must admit, I feel like that myself. Yeah. At the end of certain car journeys, I definitely feel that way. Um, <laughs> I do think it, I mean, apart from, say, the obvious people we know who are comedian stroke promoters, yeah. uh, I don't think there's any company where, yeah, the large the majority of the board of directors has been made up of committees I think that this is unique.
0: But do you think that's what's made the stand such a community-led and, and revered club? Or do you think it was before you guys had even become the board, because it was already quite unestablished.
1: Yeah. I think the attitude that was there that lends itself to having people like myself and Fred and Frankie and Miles on the board. That is the same as the same attitude as wanting to put on a good show in front of intelligent people and valuing the comedians you put on stage. Also the history of the stand is that it was actually founded by a comedian. Tommy Tommy Shepherd's former partner Jane Mackay, was the original compare here and that's how Tommy got involved because his partner was a comedian and when Tommy was made redundant as assistant general secretary of the Scottish Labour Party that's where he got the money to found the stand.
0: So this is this is Labour Party money? Yeah uh, venue.
1: because Tony Blair wanted Tommy out. <laughs> Tony Blair paid for this place to be open. Yeah. So <laughs> Pretty much.
0: I, I don't know how I feel about gigging
1: it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, obviously, uh, money that... Uh, well, yeah, it was Tommy's totally redundancy to that, that uh, funded yeah. the whole thing.
0: What do you think is the biggest problem in the Scottish circuit, then?
1: The biggest problem probably is, uh, and again, these people, probably, it's probably best not to name and shame them. There are one or two fairly uh, symbolically amateurish promoters about who and this is not a peculiarly Scottish thing it happens all over the country Uh, people who 1. book too many acts 2. don't make sure the acts stick to their time 3. have intervals that go on forever 4. put the gig on because no one else will book them so they're on their own gigs and 5. don't really do much to get an audience in although apparently last week was sold out Every, every number time. of times I've turned up and said yeah. oh should have been here last week to people like that I always say well tell you what next time book me last week
0: yeah well, it's like when I go to a supermarket and say do you have this item and they go oh we had it two days ago. Yeah, yeah. It's like oh, right, well, yeah, yeah. why? well I know what you mean by that you're basically trying to make me feel like I'm going to come back in two days. But
1: it? that that weakness um having said that there's very very few gigs like that in Scotland now there were there were a lot of them a few, uh, you know say 10 years ago.
0: But there, there are a few gigs there are fewer gigs here than in other cities anyway yeah. so as a proportion there's probably a similar number to mm. say London. Yeah. Who do you think is the most underrated person in the Scottish scene?
1: The most underrated person in the Scottish scene. My God, you mean as as a comedian?
0: You can interpret it how you like.
1: Well, you know what? When we we're talking about Ben Verth earlier, I think Ben's contribution to Scottish comedy has been immense. From turning what had been a failing upstairs pub room gig into a regular weekend show, from starting, you know, a uniquely dedicated. Scottish fringe venue, which uh, Will is carrying on next year, despite the fact he's moved out, and and then from establishing a second permanent comedy venue in Edinburgh, I, I think Ben Ben's contribution is yeah hugely underrated.
0: And if you could give uh, one bit of advice to a comedian starting out, or wanting to get to where you are now in terms of. Career-wise, I think
1: the one bit of advice Kenny from the stand always says this at the start of the fringe every year. So there's no rules to this to doing the fringe. The only rule there is is don't be a dick, and that's what I'd always give the best bit of advice to any any young person starting out in college Don't be a
0: cunt. Don't be a cunt. Imagine <laughs> <laughs> Don't be a cunt. That's going to be a soundbite. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. Cheers, Simon. That was Paul. I'd love to thank him and everyone at the stand for giving us a quiet place to record this episode and for him being so honest and humble and just telling it like it is about the circuit. It's great to hear his perspective as he's been around so long and he has viewed the circuit from almost every angle possible, from a performer to a promoter to a booker to a club exec, just he knows everyone's perspective and I totally get his point about not using your power and influence in the industry side of things to get ahead as a performer. I, I can only imagine that's probably happened a lot and it'll only bite you on the ass because you'll get a gig for a place that you're not ready to perform at and then you'll probably blow your chance at getting a spot there later on in your career when you are actually worth putting on. Also I think every comedian should at one point in their career put on a gig. I I don't mean a solo show, I mean put on a gig that is a selection of acts. They can perform as well, but just to get the other side of this, because the amount of comedians who bitch and moan about promoters, and you might be entirely right in your moan and bitching, it might be that the promoter is completely wrong and you have every right to moan about what they're doing, but I would argue that you don't have a clue about the pressures that they are under and that they're putting themselves under for the art form and for the circuit as a whole if you've not tried. So next time before you have a bitch, do take a minute and question if you've ever run a gig, and if you haven't, if you're fully aware of how much effort they had to put in on the positive side of what you're about to bitch about. But that's just my opinion. I just, I'd just, i love to see more gigs, I'd love to see more people trying to run gigs, because I think it's worth you getting that perspective. As always, if you're new here, please do hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do give us an honest review on iTunes. They really help out the show. Take a minute. While you've got about 30 seconds left of this podcast, that is enough time for you to sign up to iTunes and leave a review. So please do that while I just talk incessantly about some other things that you might want to know about. Five stars ideally, a lot of work goes into these. very quickly. I just wanted to tell you about some dates that I'm performing live, so if you wanted to come down and support me in real life, that's a way of doing it. The dates you should be interested in for this month are the 11th, 18th, and 25th, basically the next three Thursdays in May. I'm doing the Brighton Fringe, but I'm also doing the Friday, the 26th, in Brighton. ...at the Carolina, Brunswick. All the Thursday shows start at 7.30pm... ...the Friday show starts at 6.15pm... ...and all the details are on my website. So if you have a look in the show notes... ...you should be able to see it there... ...or you can go to simonkanecouk ...forward slash laughter is the best placebo. If you're not down on the coast... ...and you're more up in the sort of midlands region... ...I'm also doing a work in progress... ...in Derby at the Derby Fringe... ...on Saturday the 13th of May. Again, all the details are on my website... ...but it's at 7pm... ...and you can just reserve your ticket or whatever on the website so please come please support me there that would be invaluable and just amazingly helpful and it's also bloody lovely to meet people from the podcast so please do come down and support me if you can also if you would like to consider giving me a donation please do it helps keep the show going what value did you get out of this episode an hour's worth of content behind the scenes of questions that you always wanted to know the answer to but didn't have the chance to ask them or couldn't find the right time to go and talk to someone like Vladimir about what goes on in his head and what goes on behind the scenes at the stand what's that worth to you a pound two pound five pound whatever you think it's worth and whatever you think you can pay and you can donate because i don't want anyone going into debt for this project except for me and i don't even want me going into debt for it really which is why i'm asking so if you can donate that'd be great via paypal on my website which is simonkane.co.uk. if you're able to and you want to become a patron that'd be amazing as well basically that involves you saying i'm going to give a certain amount per episode for the foreseeable future until i can't do it anymore you can cap it i only do two episodes a month but you do it from one dollar an episode so essentially it'll cost you about one pound eighty to give me one dollar every episode it's not a lot is it but it would keep us going and it would help out and i can't thank the patrons enough they really really help me keep going with this and i'm not at break-even point, and i'm not anywhere near it but if you have the money and you can afford a pound it's just it's just passing a hat around it's like we do at edinburgh i'm just asking for a quid every time I do one of these, if you can afford it that is, it just helps sustain the thing you value really, but I won't say any more on that, because by this point you should have left me a review in iTunes, thank you very much for leaving a review in iTunes, thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much for donating if you do, I'll see you all in about 15 days time, bye!